Hey, I'm Robert Pearson, and this is Follow the Leader, and we're doing something a little different today. I have a new microphone, so uh, place your comments down below if this is better or worse than previous attempts. Um, today, we're doing a life lesson corner, and I haven't done one of these since I've been doing the uh, car vlog format, this genre that seems to appear. I'm going to call it clogging. This is Christian clogging. This is a genre that has developed on YouTube. But, uh, I haven't done a Life Lesson Corner in this format. Uh, they're on my they're on my podcast, they're on uh, my website as a, in a blog format. Uh, my, my website, all that stuff's down in the, the link description below. So you can check me out in the places. And the, uh, so this is just where I share... Some lessons I learned from the School of Hard Knocks. So you can, you know, grow up around in the darkness, maybe a, a little bit less than I have. And uh, whether I learn something from someone else or from my own experience, I'll, uh, this is the way that I will uh, try and share it and condense it in a useful, uh, concise format for you. Today is apt. My oldest son is turning 10 today. I'm a father of five, and I have been a father now for a decade, which is a little crazy to really fully wrap my mind around. I, I still haven't. Wow. All right. Um, <laughs> I'm tripping a little bit on how, uh, as a full decade of being a dad, I can't even, I, I can't even, can you tell I'm a millennial? I can't even. Barely a millennial. 87. Born in 87. Barely a millennial. Still can't even. Alright, um, so uh, today I want to share some of my parenting uh, mental frames. It's kind of the best way I can put it. But I'm going to lead into it about the importance of fatherhood as illustrated by uh, King of Israel. Or Judah, rather. Uh, I want to set up the background and I'm trying not, try not to get too distracted by the minutiae, um, but I'm the kind of guy, if you ask me what time it is, I will tell you how to build a watch before telling you what time it is. I just want to know that you know how to figure out the time for yourself in the future when I'm not around. So, we're talking about a cat named Abijah in a Hebrew, Abiyah. Uh, it is, God is my father. Uh, the way the Hebrew names break down when you hear a Yah sound short for, uh, for Adonai, the Tetragrammaton, the four letters that make up the name of God, usually pronounced Yahweh. Uh, I don't have anything against saying it, I just feel weird every time I say it, so I, I default to the word for Lord, which is the way the, the Masoretes would vocalize those letters when they read it, is they would just say Adonai when they read it. That's how you get the Jehovah pronunciation. Anyways, I'm sidetracking again, but I caught myself this time. I'll, I'll do fun original language stuff when I, uh, I get into it. I want to do a lot of the basic general topics first before starting to dive into Hebrew and Greek, because it's not, it is important, but it's important in a nuanced way. Hebrew and Greek is um, more for that that next level once you have your mindset on how you read your Bible and you have that picture kind of developing in your head, then you want to start digging into, well, what exactly does this word mean in this verse? That's when you start looking to original languages. I'll, I'll, do, I'll do stuff on it uh, later and dig in deeper. Uh, but just suffice it to say, if you're confused, read a verse 
in about five or six different translations you can get your hands on. And uh, it'll usually, nine times out of ten, it'll make sense after you do that. And you go, oh, okay, I see what they're driving at. That makes sense now. And then you can keep um, read it again in the context and kind of flow past it as you're reading and go, oh, okay, yeah, I got this now. And uh, move on. Um, anyway, so uh, his, his name, Abijah, is a combination of Yah or uh, Jah. It's German stuff. The Y becomes a J. Um, so, and then, uh, Ab, or Av, which is father, and E, which is the my, or, or mine, the first person possessive singular. So, Abi, Yah, my father, is God. The verbs implied. It's just a quick phrase. That's how they do names in Hebrew. I just think it's awesome. It's an awesome name. It sounds cool. It means an awesome thing. God is my father. And, uh, this guy's just a dude. So, just a brief historical backdrop, um, Israelites, Moses pulls them out of Egypt, well, God pulls them out of Egypt through Moses, obviously, uh, they wander around in the desert for a while because they're stupid, they, so they go straight to the promised land, they get stupid, they then wander around in the desert, and then come back to the promised land, Moses dies, they go into the promised land with, uh, Joshua as their lead man, uh, kill all the people that live there, move in, and boom, that's the kingdom of Israel. But they don't have a king. They're all just hanging out, doing their thing. Everybody follows God. The priesthood's doing the priesthood thing. That's it. Then, they eventually decide, no, you know what? We want a king like those other people. We want a king that's, you know, going to ruin the country and get assassinated and destroy our lives inadvertently. Can you not be our king anymore, God? We want a, a human meatbag. And God's like, that's stupid, but I guess, yeah, all right, fine. Yeah, do that. Now they have a king, and they last three kings before the whole kingdom gets ripped in half. Saul, David, Solomon, and then they're done. Rehoboam is Solomon's son. Kingdom gets split in half under him because he did something stupid. I, I forget exactly what right now. And uh, so the, the northern kingdom is ruled by a guy named Jeroboam, who just immediately dives headlong into Baal worship, setting up Moloch, Asherah poles, establishing high places, immediately forgets the Lord God. They chase all the Israelite, all the uh, the Levite priesthoods out. Uh, they chase all the priests and stuff out. And uh, that's where they're at. They just live in hedonism and paganism. Uh, Rehoboam does the best he can, but he's just got this little kingdom. It was basically two-thirds of the kingdom up north became its own separate country. In that split, Rehoboam continues to rule the southern kingdom. His son is our man Abijah. Now, if you look at a list of kings of Judah, or kings of Israel list, and then they'll have Judah, they'll show the divided kingdom era is what it's called. Because the kingdom was divided. I know, scholarly names for things are just crazy to to try and wrap your head around why they call things the way they do. The, uh, Abijah is always listed as an evil king, which I find interesting. So, almost every king when you read, um, as you're reading through Chronicles, uh, and, and the, this is, they're, all, they're all listed in Chronicles and Kings, First and Second Chronicles and First and Second Kings. Uh, both books cover the same events, but they have a slightly different angle on the same events. 
it's one of the reasons, it's the commonplace people get bogged down when they try to read the whole Bible from front to back like a book. Kings is where you get bogged down because you're reading the same dry narrative like four times. It, if you can power through Leviticus, it's a smooth run until you hit Kings and Chronicles. And then you're just like, oh, can we be done yet? Um, anyway. Um, Abijah's an interesting guy because uh, the, all the other kings, it'll say, he did not walk after David, his father, and he did not destroy the high places. Or, he did walk after David, his father, and he destroyed the high places, and he was a good dude. It doesn't say anything like that about Abijah. It just says he reigned, and then he died, and went to be with his fathers. And that was it. Uh, and we see a good thing and a bad thing that he did, but there's no real judgment given on him. And he's always listed as an evil king, which struck me as odd. Uh, it doesn't explicitly say, but he also wasn't a great guy either. Uh, but he has a, a unique aspect about him that I, I like. If you, if you follow the kings all the way through, they're almost, to a man, good king, bad king, good king, bad king, good king, bad king. There's a run, and then it's just a slew of bad kings. There's a run of alright kings uh, later on, uh, three or four generations after Abijah. Um, what is it? Ahaz, his son, I forget the name of right now. And so there's two kings where they do alright. There's uh, two kings where they do alright, and then later in their life, they mess up. Like, hard. Like, restore the high places. Bring all that Baal worship back in. Mmm, that good Baal worship. And then his son did the same thing, where he started out good, and then, boom, restored the Baal worship. And then, uh, then you got two good kings in a row. Uzziah, and, uh, whoever that cat is right after him. Um, and then it's just bad kings all the way down. Now, going back to... To our man Flint, it just struck me as awesome that this is a good, clean run of three kings in a row that were all right. Good. Well, you got two good kings and then an all right king. And it just struck me as odd because even uh, even the, the prophets and men of God, when they listed to have sons, their sons almost always are immediately awful. Uh, it's not like by the time the sons are adults and responsible for their own actions, they act like spoiled brats. You know, it's right out the gate, early 20s, just immediately acting like spoiled brats, which reflects to a degree on the father. To be fair, God is a perfect father, and Adam and Eve messed it up pretty quick themselves. Uh, But just with the eyes of a dad looking at the, the king's lineage, seeing a king who was able to have a good son who followed God, and a good and godly grandson who also followed God, that's that's a good deal, man. That's a really good deal. And the guy's name is God is my father. It's it's just so much fatherhood happening right there. I can't can't even. So the one anecdote we get is in Second uh, Chronicles chapter thirteen. If you want to go look it up, and then uh, his kids reign down to almost like chapter seventeen when uh, Jehoshaphat. So it's uh, Abijah, Asa, Jehoshaphat. And uh, Jehoshaphat's the one who, um, I think, drops the ball a little bit towards the end of his life. And then his kid is some power-hungry nut who uh, starts killing people and working his way up. And then he just kind of wrecks stuff after that. Uh, Joram or Joram or something. Uh, 
I, I looked all this up right before, by the way. This isn't off the tippy top of my head. I I skimmed everything right beforehand to get the exact names and uh, the, the sequence of events off. Uh, <clears throat> trying to make sure I'm not misrepresenting myself. So, Abijah has a lot of wives, is his mess up. So he starts out, and his reign is just kind of neutral. God, there's no judgment call like there are on all the other kings. Whether they did good, or walked after their father David, or followed God, or were, did good and right before the Lord. Just, this guy's in charge now. And then he has a battle with Jeroboam, almost immediately. And he delivers an amazing, stirring speech from on top of a mountain. Their forces are arrayed. See, you want the high ground when you're in a field battle. It's easier to fight going downhill. The uphill uh, crew, your arrows travel farther and they're able to hurt people from farther away or uh, sling bullets. A lot of times there were uh, weaponized slings that they'd use. And you'd, you'd get all of this in a uh, in a battle. So the two armies would both like be on a mountaintop and nobody wants to go down in the valley because the first one in the valley loses because then the other army waits till you're on the uphill slope. Boom. And they hit you and they have the advantage. And then nobody wants to just come, like, pile in the middle and death. So they'd stand off on a mountain, mountaintops or, you know, hill hill peaks overlooking a valley and trying to outmaneuver people or send other units around and, you know, make a big uh, play of it. That's where all the strategy comes together. So he's in this position, and uh, he gives this awesome speech where he, he's just railing against Jeroboam and his army, and he says, you guys have forgotten the Lord your God, and he gives a brief history recap up to that moment. Abijah knew his history. And then he says, uh, you guys don't even know God. We follow God. He was loyal to God, at least in word. Once again, he, he has a neutral value judgment on being a good or moral man. We don't know, but the guy could talk a good game at least. And then in his dissing them, saying, hey, I see you brought the golden calves. And he knew about his enemy. He knew his history. And he knew his Bible. Up to that time, it would have just been the Pentateuch and some books of history. Um, you know, maybe Samuel and Ruth. Uh, and he's, he's, giving a, he's giving a recap of the temple services that are going on. He's like, well, we've got priests. You guys kicked out all your Levites and Aaronites. We've got all those guys, they're doing the showbread thing, they're delivering the, the things. He shows a knowledge of the temple services, and it speaks of them as they're going on, currently. So he knew his Bible, he knew the ways of the Lord at that time. Um, so, I mean, if he personally was a wreck, which uh, you kind of get a window into later, humans are complicated, though. Uh, he at least knew what was supposed to be done, and he could talk a good game. Maybe not the greatest guy personally, because after he wins that battle, because he sides with God, and in the Bible, when you side with the Lord, you, you win like 100% of the time. Uh, Jeroboam's troops circle around to do like an ambush, and they see that they're surrounded and ambushed, and uh, Abijah and all the army of Judah cry out to the Lord, and the priests that marched out to battle with them cry out to God and blow the trumpets, and uh, Jeroboam gets wrecked. And then it says, and Abijah waxed mighty. Uh, King James is so awesome. Abijah waxed mighty. And you're like, oh, that's cool. He, he grew strong, you know, good nation or whatever, a strong guy. That's nice. And took 14 wives. Ugh. 
had 22 sons and 14 daughters. Oh, okay. That's cool. No, six, 16 daughters? Yeah, 16 daughters. 22 sons, 16 daughters. And, uh, and that's where it leaves him. And then it says, oh, and, and uh, Abijah slept with his father's Uh, passed away and slept with his fathers. There's a specific phrasing they use whenever somebody died. And it was uh, basically says, went to sleep with his father, David. And uh, that's it. That's the end of Abijah. And uh, so it's it's a little lame that he ends his life with that kind of debauchery. Uh, which is interesting, though, because it's fairly tame compared to Solomon, who had 300 wives and concubines. Even if you stretch back to uh, Gideon, the famous Gideon, everybody knows, the mighty man of valor who took his 300 men with trumpets and torches and chase out the Midianites. And the kids' church always ends right there because they miss the part where the, then he made for himself a linen ephod that was a vest that the priests wore. And he started holding priest services in his home on his property, separate from the Lord God. And then also took to himself 300 wives and concubines. So, uh, no, I don't respect a guy for having that many wives. But 14 is showing some restraint, given given having waxed mighty and the historical precedent of even just his own grandfather. Uh, Solomon was a notorious philanderer. Why is my foot? What struck me as interesting, though, is... He must have been a decent father, though, because his son, Asa, right out the gate, is a good dude. Um, He's fixing up the temple. He's keeping everything on the straight and narrow. There's a big battle where some uh, Ethiopians and a couple other um, nations get together and start trying to conquer Judah, and he cries to the Lord for help. He's talking to the prophets. He's doing what he's supposed to do as a king. They kick the bad guys out. He messes up, but late, late in life, as a full-grown man, it's on him, his mistakes. Um, that's, and that's always what bothers me, though, is you see the, uh, the other kings, they're, they always mess up right out the gate. Right out the gate, they're messing up. Which, as a dad looking at it, like, hey, he could have used a few more spankings on his way, way coming up. Asa, Asa gets his stuff figured out, um... I forget which is which. His Asa's son is Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, same thing. Comes right out the gate, strong start. Both of these guys have uh, good notes next to their name. At the start of Asa's reign, it says he did good and right in the eyes of the Lord. And went after the ways of his father, David. They, they say father, even though it's like great-great-grandfather at that point. Um... And uh, you can see, you can see how uh, Asa, Asa got a good start, and Jehoshaphat got a good start too, because it says the the Lord was with him, for he walked after the ways of his father David. It's the the other recurring theme for righteous kings. And uh, that's that's son and grandson of Abijah, who is just a guy by all accounts. He could talk a good game. He at least knew what was up. Uh, had a little problem with the ladies, but was on point otherwise. Abijah or Asa, sorry, Asa and Jehoshaphat both 
drop the ball when they get older. Uh, one of them gets leprosy for uh, not listening to... Oh, that's what it is. That's what it is. Asa gets leprosy because he went to start wheeling and dealing with uh, the nations. So he, he kicked out Ethiopia, called on the Lord. They come back around and start wanting to make friends and be allies and stuff. And he's like, well, all right, you know. And he starts making alliances, wheeling and dealing, instead of relying on the Lord to protect his country. Then he gets struck with uh, leprosy, I think. Josephat is, uh... Oh, wait, it just it just flew out of my brain. What was he doing? can't remember. He, he had a similar mistake where it was the end of his life. Oh, he was palling around with a bad king. That's right. He's palling around with Ahab, who is the worst of the worst. He married a prophetess of Baal. Uh, he's an Israelite king. He's the, the northern uh, nation's king. He's the worst king that that nation has. Uh, his name is Ahab. He does all kinds of terrible stuff. And at some point, Jehoshaphat thought it was a good idea to go buddy up with him and like, well, let's make friends. They're our neighbors and countrymen. Let's give it a shot uh, without consulting the Lord. And he gets back from a a trip that goes terribly. And uh, Asa, or the prophet, is risen up and says, uh, hey, Jehoshaphat, that was stupid. And Jehoshaphat um, suffers... He might be the one that gets leprosy. I forget which is which. But they, they mess up at the end of their life. The point being, fathering. Asa had to have been a pretty decent father for his son to immediately come out the gate and get a good start. And once again, the mistakes you make when you're a man, you don't get to blame on anybody else. It's you. And it was just awesome to have three kings right in a row. Three generations of pretty good dudes. They did alright. They messed up some. But they did alright. In a in a list, a lineage of kings replete with philandering and evil kings and idolaters that Abijah would kick off a good run of at least a couple of good kings by being a solid dad and a potentially solid granddad. I don't know how the the ages line up. When they're doing king's lineage, a lot of times they'll say a king comes into power, but he's actually like a co-regency where the, the elder, the dad king and the son king will both be king at the same time, kind of pass the baton. Like, uh, sort of like your uh, orientation at work or something, you know, when you're on your, well, I'm still on my trainee status, you know, you trainee king, or an apprenticeship to become king, you know. So just seeing that, though, the impact of being a father, being a good dad, so you're doing God's work, you're working hard for the Lord, but you're not letting your family fall apart. Not that that's what Samuel did when his two sons immediately are wicked right after. Uh, But just, it makes you think, you know, it makes you wonder, is he doing all he could do for a dad? You know, while he's traveling around anointing people and prophesying and calling out Saul for being an idiot? Which is, admittedly, a full-time job. So the uh, the mental framework I use to be a dad, because it's incredibly important, and I just love the story of Abijah to see that impact on the successive generations. You want to set them up right. Um, the I, I've got two different ones. So a general parenting framework on the the like timeline of parenting 
is I, I what I've seen, what I see in the Bible, uh, what I see in life, what I've found. So I'm not some expert sociologist, guys. I've just I found something that was an alliteration, which helped it be memorable, and it was pretty good. It was pretty good thinking about uh, the way my own upbringing and uh, bringing my kids up now, and seeing other people raise their kids at different ages. This fits pretty well for a, a good rule of thumb to what to do, to do, and what not to do. Uh, so I call it three-stage parenting. You are a captain, then a coach, then a counselor. Ages zero to ten, these are just fuzzy. Okay, it's going to depend on every individual child. Any decent, seasoned parent knows this. You take parenting advice with a grain of salt because what works for one kid won't work for another. And uh, your age range, whenever some expert, air quotes expert, tells you, oh, this age to this age, they're doing X, Y, Z. Uh, there's a there's a little fuzzy factor of, you know, anywhere from three to five years sometimes on where your individual child's going to develop on their timeline, on their, their neat, pretty little chart. In reality, things things can be a lot fuzzier than that. So I just threw these in uh, groups of 10 years because it was just easy math. Uh, but no, you know, your, your mileage may vary. So zero to ten years is captain. Ten to twenty years is coach, and then on out of the house, out of your out of your hair, out of your life, you're just a counselor. So zero to ten years, you're the captain. You tell them what to do. Now it's time for bed. Now it's time to get dressed. Those clothes are dirty. Take them off. Put new clothes on. Brush your teeth. Brush your hair. Shower. Scrub your stinky butt. Those kind of things. You're the captain. You're telling them what to do. You set the agenda. You set the times. You tell them where to go, when to be there, what to do when they're there, and how to do it. Um, It's all you. At around 10-ish, they're making a transition to finding their independence. Yeah, they know how to brush their teeth, brush their hair. You'll have to remind them occasionally, but by and large, they've got it. So now what? Well, now you need to adjust and transition your strategy to being a coach. You're going to have a lot of you're going to have a lot of problems if you try and railroad them when they get to that age. It creates a lot of friction with teenagers. Uh, but at the same time, if you back off entirely and don't appear to care and you just give them throw some good advice at them and let them let them fail on their own, like a, like a counselor, you you come back and come hands off, they're going to flounder, they're going to rebel, they're going to act out. Uh, Teenagers are that weird age where they need your attention, but they don't want it. And so if you leave them to their own devices, they're going to act out more and more. This is from what I've seen from other people. I don't have teenagers. My oldest is 10, as I mentioned earlier. Um, So, you know, once again, everything with just tons and tons of salt. None of that kosher sea salt nonsense. Just regular iodized salt with the little girl with the umbrella on it. Just the Walmart brand. All of it. So... Uh, as a coach, your goal is just like a sports coach. It was a perfect analogy when I thought of it. I was like, oh yeah, that's that fits in what they're doing. That's a good word for that. Once again, I'm describing this as observed, not any just, oh, I'm so smushed. I, this is just what I've seen seems to work best and what, you know, from my own uh, childhood, I'm like, that's that felt like the best way to do that. Or that could have been done better. I wish there was more advice or less advice or, you know. <clears throat> As a coach, what do you do? You can't win the game for them. You tell them to go out on the field. you got to watch them uh, win or lose on their own. And then, 
they come back off the field after running the play and go, hey, how did that go? Did it go well? Did it go bad? What's up? You strategize. You encourage them. You go, all right, man, pick yourself back up. Yeah, you lost. Don't do that again, right? What were your mistakes you made? You talk them through. You strategize. You encourage them, right? You know, get out there. You can do this. Let's do it intelligently. Let's be strategic about it, but I fully believe you're capable. Let's go. And then you got to let your hands off, back up, and watch them fail. Or watch them win. And you got to get right back in there once they're, you know, they come off the field demoralized or excited, and you got to be there for them emotionally. And, you know, not just immediately start throwing strategy at them, captaining. You, you just got to give them time. Like, yeah, we did good. Yeah, but you lost the... You did good. Live in the moment of did good. And then work towards, all right, you need pointers here, pointers there. How could we do the, you know, there's a there's a time for that emotional buildup of just ruminating. And, man, I, I dropped the ball. That sucks. Yeah, it does suck. And just, just be there in that moment with them. And then move towards a place of, all right, how what can we do better next time? What went wrong? How do we fix this? You know, a lot of Socratic stuff, uh, Socratic method of teaching is where you just ask questions. And you're, you're asking them the questions that will, when they answer the question, it gives them, gets them closer to what they wanted to know from you in the first place. Uh, it can be really frustrating if you don't do it correctly. Uh, but if done well, it helps people think for themselves and allows them a certain amount of autonomy. I mean, there's a time for lecture when you're just going to straight deliver and download information. How do you think you should run the football, Jimmy? How do you think you should add these numbers, Jimmy? No, that's not that's not smart. Uh, but when it comes to like life problems or you know thinking about a mistake, don't sit there and go, "This is exactly what you done." What went wrong? How do you how do you think that happened? What should we do to fix that? You'll be surprised the answer your kids will give you if you give them room to give you the answers. And then, uh, as they're coming up on 18, 20 years old, you know, they're going to high school, graduating, moving off to college, that's it, you're done. You're not an authority in their life anymore. You can force and exert authority, but you're a counselor now. You're good advice. You're a peer. They are, they are no longer under your direct authority or under your... Uh, under your roof, you have to you have to just do what you can to give advice. Sometimes you just have to watch them fail abysmally and wait for them to ask for advice. But you have to make sure that you're available for advice. Make sure it's clear. But I mean, they're peers at that point, and that's that's the way I've looked at it for. Uh, and I, I've laid it. I've, I've I've shared that with parents of teens, teens about to go to college, and they they lit up, and they're like, yeah, that's exactly right, that's great, so yeah, I hope it helps you, now, fatherhood specifically, because I got another one, this is just the way my brain processes reality, uh, so for fathering, the way I be a dad, I've got four main areas that I, I focus on, it's a four point uh, fathering. My four points, uh, my four roles as a dad, the, the jobs I have to do is uh, 
priest, protector, provider, and pathfinder. Priest or pastor if you're more comfortable with it. Priest if you like kind of the, the old school Levitical, um, you know, Peter says that we are all priests being built up into a holy priesthood. All members of a holy priesthood being built up into a bricks of the temple. Oh, I forget whether it's first or second Peter who says that. Um, but if it if it makes you feel comfortable or better or have a have a clearer frame of reference for what you should be doing as a as a pastor, it's the same it's the same role though. You're the spiritual head of the family. You are the last line of deciding who which church do we go to? Should we go to church? What is our family's doctrinal stance? You know, where does when you, when you teach your kids, right? Are you going to teach them about original sin? How do you teach them about original sin? What's your stance on it? There's a lot of nuance there. You know, salvation, baptism, uh, sanctification. Are you a second work of grace guy? you got to know this for yourself. you got to be read up so you can teach your kids so they have a baseline. Even if they go on to disagree with you, you're the one responsible for teaching them how to read their Bible teaching them the scriptural theological stance so my role is on Sunday morning I know I'm a pastor so what do I do I know I'm the, the family priest what do I do I should be the first one up I should be the driving force for let's get ready for church guys I should keep it a positive experience so they want to go right the 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 checklist the course of action becomes very obvious when I know my long-term goal is is to increase and enrich and grow the spiritual life of my family. Well, God provides the growth, but to till the land, right? To add fertilizer, to create an environment where it can grow readily and uh, allow God to then work in that. Then uh, as a protector, right? I'm a, I'm responsible. There's a, there's a bump in the middle of the night. Who gets up? My wife? She goes downstairs in her underwear with a baseball bat? No, I do. That's your job. That's your job, bud. There's a bump in the, the middle of the night. You are the protector of your family. The last line of defense. That's why God made men stronger. Because that's our job. In uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, when God puts man in the garden after having crafted him, he said he put man in the garden to a preposition that implies purpose and direction to work it and protect it. It always says work and keep or cultivate and keep. Those are weak, soft English words. The Hebrew word is the word for work, which can also mean serve or worship, and the Hebrew word for protect. So when you keep commandments, you're protecting commandments. And also it's the word in general, protect, like a fortress. And I don't know a single man that I've ever met in my life that wasn't excited by the idea of a hard day's work and protecting the innocent. It just completely clicked for me when I read that verse and understood that that's that's how God made us as workers, as protectors. The curse to work, I'm going to do a whole one on work eventually, but the curse to work, the curse was so your work sucks. So your purpose sucks now. And he called his wife Eve, for she was the mother of all living. Eve is a bad word for that. That's a bad translation for her name. Her name is Hayah, the Hebrew verb for to live, to life. His wife's name was life. 
She was the mother of all living. Women lived to help and to create children and to build a home. Men can build a house. Women can build a home. And so, of course, what is the curse for her? Your purpose sucks now. You're going to have strife with your husband. And bringing up children is going to hurt. Bearing, um, bearing children, that verb implies the entire process. Not just birthing the child, but that verb is also used for raising children, for teaching them, for bringing them up. It's The curse is that your purpose sucks now. So as a man, you provide for your family. I'm jumping over to provider now. And you protect them. You provide. There's a reason all men are driven to, you know, more work, more money. More work, more money. More money, more work. How can I do better? How can I be better? How can I make more money? How can I take care? Especially if you have a family. And then as Pathfinder, it's your job to call out the snakes. To see the dangers up ahead. Uh, one way that I've uh, I've seen this and uh, tried to apply it for myself. <clears throat> you ever have that moment? I know you've had that moment where you you look at what you just did or what you just said and realize I became my dad. Holy cow! I did exactly what my dad did. When your son inevitably has that moment, wouldn't you like it to be a good thing? So as a pathfinder, my family, on the paternal side, we got a long history of anger issues, short tempers, all kinds of stuff. It's gotten better from my dad to me, and Lord willing, it'll be better from me to my kids. I figured this out by the grace of God when my son, eldest son, was still a baby. A decade ago. Man. And so... I've worked hard to curb my temper so as to set him up. And I've worked hard, obviously, the Holy Spirit works in us towards sanctification. It's not all me, it's not works-based salvation. But but you gotta get your butt up off the couch and do stuff. That's the way God made the world. God grows the crops, but you gotta put them in the ground. Ask any farmer. He can't make corn grow. But if he sits on his couch, he's gonna starve. So I've been, I've been working on my temper, I've been working on patience, and I've been collecting strategies that help me curb my temper. So that way, as I see my kids struggle with the same thing I struggle with, I've already been down the path. I'm, I'm finding the path for them. I go, well, hey, bud, here's a good handhold. Here's a, here's a good foothold. When you want to climb up this part, you got to move just right to here. I'll take left here because that's, uh, that's all mud down there. You know, I've already, I've already fell in all the potholes. I know where they're at. So I can help him have an easier time of it, and he's going to make better time and get farther than I will. I look at the uh, conspiracy deep dives on the internet, digging in the news, what's really going on in the world. That's Pathfinder. i got to find out if my uh, family is going to be in danger from some crazy new societal change or law or whatever. i got to see that stuff coming so I can prepare for it. And these four areas give me directions I can go. So I have more than just a checklist. 
I can always improve my ability to protect my family. Acquiring better weapons, acquiring better training, uh, athleticism, right? I need to work out. Any weapon I hold is going to be held in these hands, so they need to be as strong as I can make them. Right? As a pastor of my family, as the priest of my family, do I know the law? Do I read my Bible, pray every day? I need to make sure my game is on point so I can help them. Are we doing family Bible studies? Is the one we're doing not working? So let's fine-tune it. But I, my goal, I've got a good long-term goal, right? Make, make the family spiritual life better. And uh, as, a, as a provider for my family, am I, am I working hard to be a success at my job? Am I not just, don't just punch in, get your money and go home, right? Yep, oh, there's eight. I'm out. No. You need to be there. Be present. Work hard. Do what's asked of you. See ways to improve your job. Make your job better. Find other jobs. Sometimes you'll have to change companies to get that. Other times you won't. You just have to stand out at the one you're at. But be Joseph. Joseph was a slave. And then went in prison. And went from being a slave to running the guy's house. Then went to prison and went to run the prison. Based on elbow grease alone. Just hard work and effort and diligence and showing up to the party, Joseph got ahead with the grace of God. God rewards that effort. And then Pathfinder, are you looking at what's coming next for your family? What's down the road? What's going on in the news? Where are my kids at? Do I see one of them developing a personality quirk that I'm not prepared to deal with? You know, I've never had to deal with depression. I don't know how to deal with it. If one of my kids is struggling with that, How can I help them, you know, I'm going to start right now collecting strategies, methods, you know, exercise. Plain exercise helps treat depression almost better than meds do for some people. It's it's a case-by-case basis. Some people have brain chemicals going on. I know that. Uh, But, you know, what what do you got going on? Are you paying attention to where your family is headed, to where your nation is headed, to where you're headed? Be thinking ahead and planning and... That's How to Dad. Also, check up How to Dad on Facebook. The guy's hilarious. Uh, But that's all I've got. That's my life lessons, my kind of mental framework and strategy for how I parent and a cool guy in the Bible to to look at as some inspiration for, yeah, I will will make mighty kings after me. As the Lord wills. That's all I got for you today. Don't take my word for it. I'll see you next time. Godspeed.